0: Hello and welcome to Fire Headlines, where we cover the hottest topics in fire service news. I'm your host, Samantha Didion, and today I am joined by the panel, Chief Bob Horton and Chief Jeff Buchanan. Our topic today is ambulance shortages. In a recent article shared in the Daily Dispatch, Portland Fire and Rescue used one of their fire engines to serve as a makeshift ambulance after seeing on their mapping app that an ambulance was not available to transport a stroke victim they were tending to. Jeff, the first question that comes to mind for me when reading this article is, are there any liability issues with fire crews transporting patients in their fire engine?
1: All right. Uh, first of all, Samantha, great to see you. Great to see you, Bob. Good to be here. And... Yeah, let me jump into it, but I'm going to deconstruct this and I'm going to roll it back a little bit. I'm going to set a little teaser. The answer is yes. When I read this article, I really thought about five different components to talk about. And I, and I just want to briefly touch on on all of them. First one is uh, relationships and, and whether it being regulatory, but the importance of embedding the ambulance company's resources into the computer aided dispatch system The Portland Fire is integral to this scenario and a best practice to be shared across the country. So that, that's point number one. Uh, point number two, as technology evolves, the need for data sharing increasing, it highlights the need for products like Intera, which happens to be a great partner to the Western Fire Chiefs Association, uh, like FirstNet, the need to have that public safety broadband network that's devoted to public safety, other partners like Sourcewell that help put all these things together. That technology piece is absolutely paramount in order to provide this information as common operating platform that firefighters need. The third component is savvy firefighters. We got these tech guys and gals that are out there that know what they have, and they're able to look ahead. Because in this particular situation, I'm quite sure there is no piece of information that said there isn't an ambulance coming, right? What it probably showed was an amount of calls that were already ongoing and an amount of resources that were already committed and they put two and two together which they didn't have to do because of their savvy and they're like hey we got to make a we got to make a decision the next component is deployment you know you can look at this as a staffing shortage which i know is true across the country that's absolutely a piece to this pie but i would also argue that there is an over triaging of advanced life support we're sending paramedics to everything And that staffing shortage is directly related to what I believe is an inappropriate allocation of limited resources. This gets us to the fifth piece of the puzzle here, which is public policy. Can they and could they be in, let's say, liability? for this, this decision? And the answer is yes, but I think there's a way to mitigate that, a way to minimize it and I love it. And I'm gonna combine the savvy firefighters with this public policy and and kind of make my point. And my point is this, I think as an organization, if you free your people up to take limited information in a time crunch and the ability to justify and articulate and describe why you're doing things for the benefit of the public, This is an outstanding decision and one that I believe could be buttressed if it was put up to scrutiny or I should not. Maybe that's the wrong choice of words could withstand the test of scrutiny. So the answer is yes, Samantha. Could they get themselves in a bind? But I think with sound policy and sound reason, like what I saw on display here, I think they're in pretty good shape.
2: You know, this this notion—it's a good place to start, Samantha, for this conversation about what's going on in terms of liability. Of course, there's liability with everything that we do. And and we as fire service professionals are in a risk management business that we we operate in gray areas all day long. We have protocols that we follow from an EMS perspective. We have standard operating procedures from an organizational or fire service response period. We have all of these systems that are in place to help guide us in our decision-making when we encounter certain situations. If this, then that, but it isn't always as clear as what the protocols direct us to and that's when you end up into these situations of uh, where it could become a, a liability for an organization here's how i i look at it you know your your biggest risk for liability is when you're being negligent when you're conducting negligent practices are there rules that that say fire engines can transport you know medical patients to the hospital in the absence of an ambulance most likely not Most likely nobody has a protocol that says, Hey, listen, if the ambulance is too far out, or you may not have one coming, go ahead. This was, this was a command decision that was made by consensus with the crew. I actually love how the article pointed out that it was a conversation with the leadership, the Lieutenant or captain of that, of that engine with a provider in the field and says, this is the right thing to do. We do not have an ambulance coming. This patient is suffering from a potentially fatal illness. We can intervene. We are Close to this emergency room, like you know, all of these factors that went into the decision that was that was being made, and they saved this this man's life. He was at, for for the, the listeners haven't seen the article. He was having a stroke. They recognized it. They had a family history of stroke. He'd never had a stroke before. He had all the signs and symptoms of a stroke. The rules are going to say you wait. So the rules are going to say you treat with oxygen, start an IV. Right, you're going to do some interventions while you're waiting for an ambulance, and you wait. Right, and that unequivocally would be the wrong decision. I mean, I think they did exactly what I would have done in the field. It was exactly what I would have done as an officer on that engine, and exactly I would have backed my crews as a fire chief if they had done that work in the field. Because this, this gets to ethics. Right, this is about do no harm. This is about making decisions in the in the best interest. There was a great outcome. We celebrate them because there was a great outcome. Is it possible that there wouldn't have been a good outcome? Is there possible that, you know, perhaps as a result of a stroke and not necessarily his case, or or there's some other medical heart attack where you're treating in route and they end up having some kind of deficit or not a good outcome, would we be having the same kind of conversation that's celebratory, even though the decision was right? Because the outcome of the decision shouldn't weigh in on, on whether the decision was right in the moment in time and in the information that they had. Could there be liability? There could be are they going to get called to the carpet by the ambulance company we have when i was a fire chief we have we we had transported in environments that we were not under uh, solid regulatory ground to do so however there was a clause in our rules and i'm willing to bet that there are in, in most of the agencies who are listening in on our on our episode that there are rules that give grace in a life saving you know emergent decision Think about mass patient care. There aren't a lot of protocols that help. And many times people are transporting in police cars. I mean, this is Jeff's experience during Route 91, not to put words into his mouth. I mean, the point is is there's these gray areas that are operating. We did it. The ambulance came after us, tried to make a scene about it. And just like you would imagine, you know, the public outcry, knowing that there was no ambulance coming to someone who was having an emergency was certainly not worth it for them to try to prosecute their case in the court of public opinion. So I applaud the work that was done here. Can I let me go into a little bit on the information thing Jeff brought up because that is that is really important. There was information sharing that was occurring in this community that afforded those commanders, those the firefighters and providers in the field, to make the best decision they had with the most complete information possible. That is not happening everywhere in this country. There is a resistance in the private ambulance market. So so the partnership here is you have a you have a public provider, the fire department, city of Portland. You have a private contract ambulance provider, in this case, AMR, a private company. Private companies, by way of doing business, have these proprietary rights to run their business without having to share their their playbook, essentially, publicly. So, this is proprietary information. We don't have to share that. Now, that isn't necessarily the case when you're a provider for the, the county. The county contracts you to provide, which means they can set the regulatory tone that says you have to share this information into the system. Generally speaking, the ambulance company does not want to share where their ambulance, how many ambulances are in the system, where they are at. That is a competitive market advantage by them having that information when they're competing against other ambulances for service delivery. We see that as unacceptable in public safety because we, one, have to be transparent with everything we do. Everything we do is subject to public record and it's public information. They're not necessarily held to that same standard. So you end up in this conflict over who has what information. There's this information asymmetry issue, which creates tension and stress in the field because these providers didn't show up to work and say, hey, we're going to take someone in the fire engine to the hospital today because we want to show the system something's wrong. It was absolutely not the decision making that was going on there. They had information that let them make the best decision in the patient's best interest. I applaud that.
1: First of all, I'm 100% aligned with with all the things that you mentioned. I just want to recommit to a couple things which really really resonated with me and why i really really like this article because it all goes back to that first question you asked for all intents and purpose can you get in trouble for what they did and i like how bob reframed it to say okay let's not look at outcomes because that is a true way to look at this, look at the system design, the process. How do we get to the decision? And I want to come back to those uh, to three important factors. That's the technology. If it, that information wasn't there, these savvy firefighters could not have made that decision. And then we get to that public policy piece where they they actually they broke a rule. Right. There's no doubt they broke a rule. But what I love about it, and, you know, kind of one of the thing that excites me about this show is we critically deconstruct different articles and and we talk about them and here. What I love about it for the firefighters is they have, in my opinion, and, and maybe I'm getting out over my skis here and outside my lane. I think they have two strong legs to stand on for the decision they made because they had the technology to show the decision that they were making. They had consensus, which showed thoughtfulness at the scene and they intentionally broke that public policy. Why? Because they care. But in addition, they used logic. And in the legal world, which I'm not a lawyer, disclaimer, there's a reasonable person test. Would a reasonable person, given that information, hey, technology is saying that this is a critical patient based on my training, there isn't going to be an ambulance coming anytime soon. Ooh, but wait a second. This is against the rule. Would they have done it? I would submit that the answer is yes. So that's why I really love this particular article. This is, in my opinion, a paragon, a model of excellence for firefighters to follow when they're making such a difficult decision. Back that baby up, make sure it's supported, make sure you care and it's in the community's best interest. I think you're going to be in a good spot every time. I love it.
0: Yeah, the article does state that transporting victims and fire engines does not work in every situation but it did happen to work in this one but the portland fire crew is finding themselves in the situation more and more lately where they are running out of ambulances to transport patients so i wanted to ask you guys are there any alternative strategies or resources being utilized to compensate for the, the shortages
1: Uh, Yeah, I'll jump in here. You know, I think this kind of goes back a little bit to one of the points I made earlier. I think that there's a further evaluation going on and what resources need to go to what calls. You know, are we sending too many paramedics out to to certain situations? So I think I think it kind of begins there, in my opinion, with really, really taking a more thoughtful approach to allocating the appropriate resources to the appropriate call and I, and and I do think that that's going on there are there are definitely places like Seattle which have have figured out that they don't need as many paramedics on on a particular day and they can still be equally if not more effective i think there's a trickle down effect there to the the rest of the system when you're talking about units that are available and, and, and ultimately getting patients to definitive care in a in a faster and more effective way. So um, the answer the answer is yes. And there's a there's a there's a host of other things. I'll let Bob kind of lean into it. But that's that's where my first instinct is, is that I I do believe that in different parts of the country, we are seeing a critical and analytical approach to our deployment, how we are constructing that system and how we're getting the right care to the right people and ultimately more timely modalities of treatment.
2: It's easy to get in one of these conversations and paint the ambulance providers, private ambulance providers, as the villains in this story. While there are practices being done by ambulance companies that I certainly would question, as being the best in, in terms of caring for patients the the reality is this is a systemic problem i mean this is an epic failure of the healthcare system i am not going to be shy about about this and because 911 is the frictionless access point to healthcare frictionless access point to healthcare it becomes the default provider of choice in many situations and there are a lot of sociological reasons you know that that it's there i i i do not subscribe to what is you know kind of this fundamental assumption you hear around a lot of fire stations which is that oh, people just want to abuse the system that's a small piece that is that is not the overwhelming majority of the problem we're talking about which is this catastrophic rise in 911 is the access point for healthcare so thus, you know, in an ambulance model, typically like there, there's not money being made, like they cannot run a business unless they're transporting patients from A to B and insurance providers are paying for that. Or in some rare cases, private, private pay, because folks don't have insurance that they're paying those bills. And there's that, that's a, I mean, that's a whole day of a, of a episode just on that in and of itself. So the, the challenge is really unpacking this healthcare system and thinking about what is what does the right system look like? And Jeff is is spot on with that. I mean, it's like, how are we, as the 911 system, deploying resources? How are we meeting the, the demand with the supply and the needs and aligning the right resource deployment well? One other point that I, I want to make up, because I could spend all day talking about this, is ambulances most across the country, the ambulance system, the EMS system, is regulated as a piece of the healthcare system. Uh, meaning they're under a Department of Human Services or Department of of Health in a community. The fire department is is in public safety. And so there is this tension between how we provide service as a public safety entity, a backstop of all emergencies in our community and where ambulances and EMS fall in the structure. So you end up with this conflict between public safety and public health on how are we going to try to solve this issue? And public health is managing hospitals and EMS system hospitals, et cetera. You know, public safety's approaching this completely different. So we we have a, a system that essentially there are some resources standing by. They, theirs isn't, right? And, and ambulances are trying to run on this optimal model where an ambulance is actually moving to a patient and a patient to a hospital and back and forth all day because every minute that's downtime is a minute that's lost. It doesn't work. It's not, it's not working. Not every patient needs an ambulance. You know, not every patient needs an emergency room. We have to do better in our, in our dispatch systems and being able to triage that out. And we have to introduce more resources to our community to help solve these issues because it is not a marketing problem. It is not a tell the community, this is a taxi and this is an ambulance that will not work. This is, this, this is a societal, this is a sociological challenge and it's a frictionless access point to government services that is not these folks fault for the system that is failing them and thus we end up with you know this overutilization of paramedics this overutilization of ambulances and we're in a, in a crisis where something like this is a true emergency which is intended for our, our 911 system to resolve they have to improvise you know by taking a patient in a fire engine and go to the emergency room because we didn't talk about the opportunity cost of that either If that engine needed to be used at a different call, like in that moment in time that they were moving people, what does that look like in the system? Like that—that's certainly not the point of this article. But the 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 point, you know, I think is, or at least this part of the question, we have to do better with resource allocation. We have to be at the table, and we can't just be angry about it. As much as I just made that, what I felt like was an argument about this this debate between public safety, public health is that's how the system is designed. We got to sit with public health partners and figure this out. We have a motivation to do that in public safety. Ambulance companies don't necessarily have that motivation because their incentives are aligned with transporting patients from wherever they are to an emergency room because that's what insurance will pay for. They will not pay for you to take them to an urgent care. They will not pay for you to solve the problem in their house. And that conversation is going on about how to get insurance companies to recognize an alternative means to resolving patient care And until we can move the needle on that, I think we're going to find this is an increasing problem across the country.
0: Any final thoughts before we move on to our listener question for this week?
2: Samantha, I just want to I want to message the fire chiefs who are listening to this episode to hear. You have to dive into your regulatory structures. You have to dive into the partnership with private ambulance. If that's the system that you have, you have to work with your 911 centers and directors and do exactly what Jeff said on the onset of this episode. You have to get what information is out there and make sure that information is shared seamlessly between all parties that are involved in that call. Because our commanders deserve to have all the information, the best information, and our technology partners like Intera in this case are with us. They're aligned with us, the, the fire service. And saying, we are here to help get that information from where it is to in the hands it needs to be. And so, Fire Chiefs, if you, you cannot be passive in this discussion. You have to be very active in engaging in the conversation about this information sharing and bring in tech partners like Intera to help you solve for this. That needs to be on your agenda.
1: And I'm going to add on to that because I, I just have to. Uh, you know how much sports talk radio I, I watch, and my son uses this word, old head. And uh, I just heard it today on, on talk show radio It has little to do with age and it has to do about a way of thinking, get out of the past, into the now, into the future, be innovative, be creative. And I think that that goes along with this piece of the puzzle too, as an industry, we have to stop being old heads. We have to stop thinking about traditional ways we do things, which tradition is super cool. And I do love tradition, but not when it gets in the way of progress and we already, everybody knows the cliche. So we have to be forward thinking. We got to stop being old heads. We got to get after it.
0: Absolutely. Moving on to the listener question for this week, a listener wrote in As the cost of supplies, payroll, fuel, and everything else goes up, how do you see small departments with budgets that are already tight maximizing their dollars?
1: I'll take that one uh super difficult every single person in the fire department knows the constraining budgets that go year over year over year looking into their crystal ball and say oh gosh what's inflation going to do this year you know to my fuel fuel costs is is already difficult one of the things you can do on the front end is you can put aside an arbitrary percentage to to calculate for these types of situations inflation you know you can call it a fudge factor you call it what you will that's that's a possibility but you can also be Super intentional with your processes, super intentional with the moves that you make operationally to be to be more effective, trying to minimize like in the case of fuel, trying to be more coordinated with training efforts for crews trying to be more coordinated overall with potentially deliveries or any number of things that happen in an operational type setting. So, you know, there's just a whole host of reasons that you can, you know, consolidate steps.
2: Samantha, I'll try to be brief on that question. It's a very good question. It's a, it's a math problem. Like this is about rising costs and, and fixed essentially revenues so a lot of, uh, of our listeners are gonna be in a tax scenario if their primary revenue stream to run their organization is property tax. They're generally capped at 3% or so of, of property tax of assessed valuation every, every year. So your real market value of your home may have gone up, let's say 10%. The tax cap on what you can be taxed for that only goes up 3%. Meanwhile, the cost of providing service is going up nine to 10% employee costs alone are going up nine to 10%. And that's not a value judgment whether I think it should or it shouldn't. That's just a fact. The fact is employee costs are going up. Cost of insurance to provide insurance for your employees is going up, you know, an exorbitant rate. So if your employee costs are somewhere, say 70%, maybe if you're a fire district all the way through the low 90s, maybe mid 90s, some organizations, employee costs alone are 90% of your budget. That leaves you... You know, 10% or less in, in those types of organizations, that's discretionary funding. I mean, actually, I haven't even, I haven't even really got to just keeping the lights on because all of the supplies like that came in the question. These are fixed costs that you're going to have to pay uh, to run it. So you're, the, the, the challenge is simple. You cannot survive by doing nothing, by just sitting sitting standby. You have to raise revenues and come up with other ways to generate money or you have to improve efficiencies. And for small organizations to survive in the years 2030 and 2040 in the next 10 to 20 years for a small agency on these very fixed budgets, short of you've got amazing community support to raise a tax levy and say, we're going to, we want additional tax to, to operate. And many of our organizations right now, that's how they survive. They survive on grants and they survive on operating levies that go in front of the voters, you know, year, five years, whatever it is in your particular community. My call to action on how to how do small organizations survive is you have to regionalize in every component that you can look for partners look for collaboration look for ways that you can do shared service agreements with your maintenance work with your technology systems with your payroll with your hr whatever it is start looking for friends who are providing a similar service to you and and that may not be other fire departments it may be other types of departments or other districts. That's going to stretch your capacity longer and be able to reinvest in your workforce and the challenges you're facing there with trying to keep keep employees by providing them competitive benefits, et cetera. Stretch the dollars where you can by being efficient and looking for partners. So I, I will beat the regionalization drum from here into uh, in perpetuity.
0: Thank you Chiefs for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. A link to the article we discussed can be found in the show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a question for the panel, please reach out to us at fireheadlines at wfca.com and let us know what's on your mind. We'll see you back here next week for more Fire Headlines.